G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. The story. I gave the speech and it was rousing and everybody loved it and they gave applause. But what they didn't know was that internally my life was a mess. Um, My family was kind of falling apart. There was tons of arguing that was going on. And internally I was struggling with these feelings of homosexuality that nobody knew about. And I tried to pray and it didn't go away. So I thought if it doesn't go away, maybe the best thing is for me to go away. G'day, I'm Jimmy Colfax. Welcome to The Story. Well, Ricky Gillette grew up knowing that he was always a bit different to other little boys. He was a little more sensitive and artistic and not attracted to the usual rough and tumble activities of other boys his age. He eventually began to struggle with same-sex attraction before finally becoming a Christian and having a heart to help others struggling with sexual brokenness. We'll hear Ricky's story today. But before we get started, I just want to warn parents that due to the adult subject matter of sexuality that will be discussed, today's conversation is not appropriate for young listeners. Now, here's Ricky Gillette having a chat with Eric Scatterbo in our Melbourne studios. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Eric. Good to be here today. Glad to have you with us. And let's go back to your childhood. What was it like? You just kind of felt you were a little bit different? Yeah, I always felt like I was a different kid. I, I, I had a kind of odd family situation. My mom and dad married when they were just teenagers. Mm-hmm. And um, my dad pretty much left pretty quickly to go and try to provide for the family. He was a guy who wanted to make sure he took care of you know, his family. And so he ended up having jobs out of town. And so he spent most of his time away from the home. And as a result of that, I grew really close with my mom. And my mom had two sisters. They were either unmarried or divorced at the time. And then I had two grandmothers, and they were both divorced. Mm. And so I grew up in the midst of a whole bunch of ladies. And they were phenomenal ladies. I loved them, and they loved me, and I got along great with them. But I I noticed that I didn't like some of the things that a lot of the other guys liked. I wasn't into sports. I didn't like football. And I didn't really have any male role model that was around a lot to show me how to be a man. And where were you when you grew up? I was in Louisiana, uh, New Orleans. I grew up in New Orleans. Deep in the South. Deep in the South. (laughs) Had lots of uh, hunting and fishing kinds of things, which, you know, did happen for guys. And Mm -hmm. and I wasn't crazy about killing stuff, but I did like to fish. (laughs) And... uh, but but I just noticed that I, I was a pretty artistic kid. I was really mm-hmm. good in school. Um, I, I just felt very different. And I was longing for some kind of connection with a male mm-hmm. uh, because, like I said, my dad wasn't there. And then when he did come home, it seemed as though his presence interrupted whatever cool things that we had scheduled out with my mom and, and her sisters and my grandmothers. And so it was always a little weird when dad showed up simply because – it seemed as though everything stopped its normal pace and we focused on whatever dad wanted to do while he was there, which typically was nothing with us, but, but just trying to rest because he had been out out at work for a long time. Mm -hmm. Now as a little kid, I mean, obviously I didn't necessarily recognize all that, but, but that was the reality of my situation. And then what interestingly happened was 
when I was really young, my one of my grandmothers married for the third time. Mm-hmm. And when she married, all of a sudden I had this step-grandfather that came into the picture. Well, I was super excited about that, and he was a super nice guy, and he was really attentive to me, and he started giving me lots of attention and affection. So this sounds like this is what you always wanted, right? Absolutely. It was exactly what I was always looking wanted, for. Always wanted male companionship and affirmation and all that? Yep. Yep. And I, I thought, wow, this is going to be fantastic. And it was at the beginning. It was quite wonderful. But what the family didn't know about him is that uh, he was also a pedophile. Hmm. And at a very young age, he began to groom me and molest me. Hmm. And as time went on, uh, it happened on a really regular basis. My my parents were very strict and very careful not to leave us with sitters for fear that something would happen to us. But pretty much on a regular basis, they would deliver us to grandma and grandpa's house. Hmm. And then grandpa would pretty much have his way with me. So the very thing they feared the most was happening. Yeah, and they mm. were trying to be super careful to make yeah. sure it didn't, which goes yeah. to show that, you know, parents oftentimes mm. say to me, you know, I never knew this could have happened. And I'm like, well, there's no way you could have known. You know, it's just mm. something that happened and it was outside of your control. So that began to take place. At the beginning, I didn't realize that what was happening was really wrong because it was my granddad mm. and it was the person I was supposed to trust and believe in. But as I got older and I moved into junior high and high school, I began to realize that the feelings that I had were actually homosexual feelings. Mm. I just want to stop you there because here you had this God-given longing for companionship and affirmation and attention from a male mm. role model. I mean, that's a good thing. Right. But Normal. it was, yeah, but it was twisted and perverted through your experience with your step-grandfather. That's correct. So that um, just added to the confusion yeah. of your already kind of feeling a little bit different absolutely to begin with yeah now i really felt different because mm, yeah. i knew that the feelings i had as like i said as i got into junior high and high school middle school and high school uh, i started to have some friends mm. guy friends that i was close to but then at times i would feel really strangely toward them and i realize now uh, that those feelings were in fact homosexual feelings and that what i was experiencing was a same-sex attraction mm. or homosexuality mm. now that too was unusual because we actually had uh, a couple of folks in our family that had identified as homosexual and they were very loved and appreciated and respected. One of them was a very successful businessman and great socially, you know, with mm-hmm. everyone and everybody liked him. So I thought, well, I could embrace this and it would be okay more than, more than likely. My family wasn't a Christian family. We had some knowledge of religion and God in a sort of big general kind of way, but we really weren't practicing Christians. And uh, I thought, well, okay, I could embrace this, but there was something internally within me that said, this really isn't who I'm supposed to be. And I really long to have a family and a wife and a home and all Mm. that sort of stuff. And I knew that if I embraced that, that wasn't really something that was an option. A wife wasn't going to happen in Mm -hmm. a homosexual relationship. Yeah. And so I began to really struggle with okay, what do I do with this? How do I get rid of this? And so the little bit of religion I knew, the little bit of Catholicism in which I had been exposed to as a kid, I knew that if you pray to God, he answers prayer. And so Mm -hmm. I began to pray earnestly that God would take away these feelings I had for other males. And I prayed and prayed and prayed to try to pray the gay away. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, the gay wouldn't go away. And so finally, one day in high school, I had been really... Uh, pretty popular. Uh, I was a student council president my senior year. I was teenager of the year. I was wow. graduated near the top of my class. So all this confusion going on in your mind, but yet very successful in other ways. Yeah, I, I overcompensated hmm. for, you know, and it, it was also a way, I think, to garner external affirmation for me. 
mm-hmm. because I really wanted my dad to to say, "Son, I'm proud of you, and mm-hmm. you've done a good job." And he just was. He just never could do that. Probably. So you were really driven for that affirmation. Oh yeah, very Make much. Dad so. proud. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. and and so I just never got that. And so, like I said, I even got invited uh, in my senior year to give one of the commencement addresses at the commencement. And so I gave the speech, and it was rousing, and everybody loved it, and they gave applause, and they, you know, moms were elbowing their their daughters or their husbands saying, okay, this guy is a guy we need to get our daughter with because he's got, you know, his head on straight. He's hmm. going places. Hmm. But what they didn't know was that internally my life was a mess. Um, my family was kind of falling apart. There was tons of arguing that was going on. Uh, there wasn't a lot of um, – just not a lot of nurturing that was happening there. Hmm. And internally I was struggling with these feelings of homosexuality that nobody knew about. And I tried to pray, and it didn't go away. Mm-hmm. So I thought, if it doesn't go away, maybe the best thing is for me to go away. And mm-hmm. so early one morning, I got a big styrofoam cup and went into my mom's medicine cabinet and grabbed every pill that I could find that was there, every prescription med that was there, put it in the cup and drank it all down, and went to my room, locked the door, and thought that I would never come out mm-hmm. and hoped that I would just fall asleep and never wake up again. Now, miracle really happened because my mom found me or figured out what was going on later that night when I refused to come out of my room. And she said I I wasn't even responding appropriately to her trying Mm. to talk to me through the door and whatnot. But she knew that that something had happened. And so she found me. I went to the doctor. Obviously, I didn't die. Mm. But um, but nobody really mentioned or said anything about that attempt. They, they, I never went to counseling. They didn't talk to me about what happened. It was just like, oh, my gosh, this really hurt me. And that was the end of it. You're listening to The Story. Today, Eric Scatterbo is chatting with Ricky Chillette about his life journey and about the inner turmoil that was taking place in his life after he was abused by his step-grandfather. We'll hear what happens when God enters his life when we return. The Story. If this program has highlighted something you'd like prayer for, we'd love to pray for you. Call 1-800-PRAY-FOR-ME. That's 1-800-772-936. It's a free call. Or text 0401 132 888. Hi, I'm Jimmy Colfax, and this is The Story. We're back with more of Ricky Chillette sharing his life journey. Before the break, we heard how Ricky was confused about his sexuality after he was abused by his step-grandfather as a child. This inner turmoil led him to attempt to take his own life. Now we'll hear what happened next in Ricky's life. About six weeks later, I was even more depressed because I thought, wow, I'm such a failure that I can't even kill myself well. Mm. And so I thought, well, I need to do this more significantly. And so my dad and I had hunted, and so we had guns in the house. We live in Louisiana. And so uh, I went and grabbed a pistol that I had used many times before, snuck it into my bedroom. I got down on the side of my bed with the lights turned off, and I was just about to pull the trigger when I realized that um, I had tried everything to try to change. But I had been to church with a friend of mine that was in the advanced class that I was in who was a piano player. And I had spent a lot of time with their family, and their family was incredible and very different than my family. And they were Christians. They were Baptist. Mm-hmm. And so the guy was doing a recital, and he said, I'd love for you to come and um, sing for the recital, you know, at my recital. And I said, oh, yeah, I'd love to do that. I was a singer, and so I said, I'll do that. But he said, well, in order to do that, you need to come to church. 
and he said, um, we'll go to church, and then after church, we'll practice. And I thought, well, this is evangelicals are pretty slick. You know, they get you to go to church this <laughs> way. And so sure enough, I did, and I went to church with him several times. And every time I went to church, the pastor seemed to be preaching on something that just really spoke to me. Hmm. It was as though God had made the message for me. And I remember one time specifically, the pastor was talking about the gospel and what Jesus had done and how he died for our sins and, and how if we trusted in him, he could transform our life and change us, change our hearts and give us a new heart. And I thought to myself, wow, that's an incredible message, but what a crock. I mean, how can they believe in this, this God who sent his son and died and they're believing in these ancient you know, teachings that people mm-hmm. wrote in all different places across thousands of years? This is just nuts. Why, why are these Christians so weak-minded? But in that moment, I thought to myself, maybe, just maybe, what they're saying is accurate. Because their family was a lot different than my family. And I said out loud into the darkness of the night, God, I don't know if you're real. I don't know if you're true. I don't know if you can do what they say you can do. But if you can, you need to do it now or I'm going to pull this trigger. And in that moment, the Lord showed up in that room with me. Now, he didn't show up in a physical way. It Mm -hmm. wasn't a physical manifestation or audible voice. But I felt an overwhelming sense of God's presence and warmth and caress. Mm -hmm. Um, I knew in my heart in that moment that there were two things God communicated to me. One, I will never leave you and forsake you. And two, I will be a father to the fatherless. Mm -hmm. Now, I didn't know at the time that those were scriptures, but in fact, they were. I found out later, which was really cool to see that God had told me something that was in the word, you know, and uh, because I didn't really know the word at all. But when I found that out, it was just so affirming to say, God saw my pain, he Mm -hmm. saw my hurt, and he spoke into it in a way that literally transformed my life. And so I stood up that night, and I still had a dysfunctional family. I still had a grandfather who would continue to try to do things with me in the years to come. But I knew that I had a God who was with me and that he wouldn't leave me and he wouldn't forsake me. Mm -hmm. And he would be the father that I always wanted and never had. And at that moment, my life began to radically transform. So then you began to go to church. Yeah, I did, actually. And my folks, again, weren't very happy about the fact that I was going to church. They were of a different faith belief and they didn't necessarily want me to go to where I was going and uh, but I knew that's where I needed to go and so I started attending and my life began to change I found this incredible hunger for the word of God I started reading it all the time and every moment I had free I was opening it up and reading it and it was just coming alive to me in ways that it never had before and so I was really really excited about that and and honestly as I look back at my life now I realize now that um, God really kind of saved me and called me at the same time. The only problem was I didn't know enough about him or his word to recognize that what was happening. But as soon as I started attending church, the people in the church often came to me and said, oh, you're going to be a, a minister. You know, you're going to be a preacher. Oh, they uh, knew already, huh? Yeah, they hmm. knew really, wow. really soon. And I kept saying, y'all are crazy, y'all are crazy, because part of my goal in life, I, I grew up a pretty – lower middle class family and um we had you know financial difficulties throughout Mm. my early childhood and i lived in a neighborhood that had a bunch of folks that didn't struggle at all with financial issues and i thought i want to be like that and Mm. they were lawyers and stuff like that so from about the time i was six or seven my mom says that you know i i told her i was going to be a lawyer and so i had my full intention was to go to law school Mm. and i was you know in college now doing pre-law and uh, political science and pre-law and so I fully intended to be an attorney. And when I got saved, all I did was kind of baptize that uh, that desire to be a lawyer. And I said, okay, God, if, if you'll let me be a lawyer, then 
you know, help me to be a judge and I can become a Supreme Court judge and I can really make an impact on the world. You know, so I had this really lofty expectation of what my wow, life was going to be Since like. you were six years old, you knew this is what you wanted to do. Yeah, it was crazy. Wow. So, so I thought, okay, this is great. God's making all this happen. You know, it's going to be awesome. But then as I progressed in my Christian life and my walk with Christ and he began to reveal more and more about what was going on and all these church people were saying, you're called into ministry. I really started giving it some thought, and and I didn't really want to be a preacher because all the preachers I saw and ministers I saw, they just seemed to be poor. And I'm like, you know, you don't make any money in in ministry. So I thought, well, I, I got to do something that makes more money than that, you know. <laughs> and then I looked at some of the ministers, and they didn't seem to be too happy about what they were doing. They had these, you know, forlorn faces and oh, really? and, and not as happy as I thought they should be. So I'm like, I don't know if I want to do that, God. You know, I can make a bigger difference being out there in the secular world. But the Lord kept working with me until finally I really realized that he was calling me into ministry. And he finally communicated to me that, you know, in some ways, Ricky, you had it right from an early age. I do want you to deal with law, but the law that I want you to deal with is not that of the world, but it is mine. Hmm. And oh, so interesting you're transition deal, there. Yeah. yeah, and you're going to deal with my law. Yeah. And so I was like, okay, God, if that's what you want me to do. And so I finished up my degree in pre-law, went and enrolled at a school I couldn't afford to go to, uh, Christian uh, College in Louisiana. And uh, two and a half years into it, you know, switched over there, picked up another major, graduated near the top of my class there, and did really well and, and knew that I was called to ministry. Went on into seminary at New Orleans Seminary and graduated from there. And then have worked in churches for the past, you know, 30 years. But what about the same-sex attraction? Yeah, what about that? Well, that same-sex attraction was still a part of my life. You know, it was there in the background. Um, After I graduated from seminary, uh, actually before I graduated from seminary, uh, I was called to a church in Louisiana and um, as the minister of education in students. And so I was working there and there was a a very interesting young lady that was in this church and she was in their college ministry. Uh, She was in school as well. She was about my age. And, uh, at first, you know, I noticed her just because she was kind of different and very beautiful. And, and, uh, but as time went on, we developed a relationship and I began to really feel attraction to her. And, uh, we went kind of back and forth a few times as to, you know, well, could this even work? And I shared with her very early on my own personal story so that she knew because I didn't want her to get involved with me and then not know what she was up against. You know, I said, this is where I come from. This is yeah, what has happened. Yeah. This is what has taken place in my life. And I just need you to be aware of that. And in her incredibly gracious way, she was fine with it. She said, if anything, it, it, it makes me trust you all the more that you're willing to trust me with this information. And so we began, you know, our relationship by the time I was 26. Um, we got married. And we were married for 30 years, you know, and they said it wouldn't last, but it did. And it was incredible. I mean, we had a wonderful, amazing relationship. And and that verse of God that he gave me that night that I was saved, I will never leave you and forsake you, really came back to play a big part in my life just literally a few months ago when I stood at the side of my wife's bed and I watched her breathe her last breath after she had struggled for seven years with um, kidney cancer. And uh, in that moment when she gave up her last breath and lifted her hand uh, as we were singing, as I was singing to her, and went to be with the Lord, I felt the Lord again say to me, I'm not going to leave you or forsake you. And it's, you know, it's been a scary journey, but because of all the things I've seen God do in my life, I knew that 
my heavenly father was still my father. He was still with me and he would give me the strength to get through the grief and to continue on doing the thing that he's called me to do. Uh, I know it's going to be a little more difficult in some ways uh, without her around because she was such an incredible support to me. But at the same time, I also know that um, even before she died, I had a sense that God would allow me to uh, probably speak more and be gone more uh, because I didn't have that responsibility. And uh, and I feel like that's what's happening now. He's calling me out into a new area of boldness and to be out there speaking a bit more and talking about my story and the fact that God transforms people's lives. And I do that particularly uh, through Living Hope Ministries, which I've been an executive director of for the past 15 years. It's been around for 30 years. I've been involved with it for about 20 years. And um, it's a ministry that helps uh, proclaim God's truth as we journey with those seeking sexual and relational wholeness through a more intimate relationship with Jesus. And we deal mostly with folks that are having gender struggles and homosexual struggles, helping them understand who they are in Christ and embracing that reality and then allowing the Holy Spirit and God's power to literally transform their lives. Uh, and, and so it has been one of the most satisfying uh, ministries I've ever done in my life because I've seen the power of the gospel truly transform people. And you shared your story of being at that lowest, lowest point. You had this same-sex attraction that you didn't want. Right. And you were going to kill yourself. Yeah. And you shared with me before we started to record, that's one of the reasons why you do this ministry yeah. is that you want to help people who are in that situation to let them know that there is hope. That's right. You know, Eric, I think there's so many, we hear about so many young people that are committing suicide mm. and it's always blamed on the fact that they're struggling with their sexuality and someone didn't accept them or mm. didn't love them or didn't embrace them. And though I know that that is probably true in many cases, I also know that there are people like me who had the struggle. They were fighting with mm. these feelings, but didn't know there were any other options to get out of it. And mm. the culture we live in says that if you feel you are. And so if you have these feelings, then you must embrace these feelings. And a lot of times the way that you discover that you really are what you think you are and feel you are is that you experiment with it. Mm. You, you try it. Well, once you try it, it often feels really good mm. because sex is designed by God to feel mm. good. It doesn't matter who you're having it with. It's probably going to feel good. So it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Absolutely. Mm. You do it and then all of a sudden these kids get hooked and the next thing you know, they're continuing to practice mm. it. And before you know it, they're hooked into it, and they, they've been feeding it. And mm -hmm. as a result of that, whatever you feed typically grows. Mm -hmm. yeah. And if you keep feeding it, then any other attractions that you may have latent in your life are certainly not going to develop if you're feeding that homosexual mm -hmm. desire. You know, when, when all that stuff was happening with my, my step-grandfather, I mean, I didn't have much interest in women whatsoever simply because that need was being satisfied in this inappropriately intimate mm -hmm. relationship yeah. with him. Yeah. You know, and it was only after all that stopped and I realized what had happened that that the desire to really be intimate with a woman kind of emerged in my life. But it was really a, a pretty long process of healing that took place in order for that to happen. I spent, you know, two years at the feet of a, a counselor saying, you know, help me to understand what's going on. Mm -hmm. And even though he didn't really know a lot about homosexuality per se, he was an incredible godly man who loved me and cared about me mm -hmm. and. And uh, knew a lot about Jesus and a way to communicate him in a way that, that helped me understand who I was in Christ. Now, you counsel several different people who are struggling with same-sex attraction. Mm -hmm. Would you say that your story is not necessarily everybody's story? Correct. There's a wide variety of different experiences. Yeah, everybody's that story people... is unique, actually. Mm -hmm. And there's all kinds of stories out there. Um, there are some people who 
um, have had this struggle and who've acted on it and have been in the lifestyle of you know homosexuality uh, who feel as though they have no attraction to women at all. Um, even after they become a Christian correct. and love even the after Lord. They, yeah, even if mm-hmm. they're doing all the right things mm-hmm. and they still feel like, I don't have that yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so their their option is that they have to you know, be celibate mm-hmm. and live a celibate life devoted to Christ. And, just and, like Paul was celibate in, in the right. Bible. Yeah. yeah, and just like every single adult mm-hmm. who's not yet married is living. You know, and, yep. and, and I mean, it, it is it is actually the most common experience of humanity. You know, we're born single. We're probably going to die single, you know, and in between time you may get married. But but that's usually a shorter period of time sometimes than the others. And so, yeah, everybody experiences that. And so that's a perfectly legitimate, good way to serve the Lord. There are others who may still have some level of same sex attraction uh, because of the habituation of activity that they did in their life. But they realize that that isn't God's will and God's design. And so they're willing to let that lesser desire go unsatisfied while they fulfill a greater desire to be obedient to Christ in a marriage committed to a woman. And they get their sexual satisfaction and their sexual expression and intimacy needs met through the relationship with their wife and they're committed to their wife. That's kind of where I fell. You know, I still had. Uh, the occasional and can have the occasional attraction to a man, but I know where it's coming from and why it's there now. And I absolutely adored my wife, was sexually attracted to my wife, um, had a very normal sexual relationship with my wife, and um, I'm grieving that she's not with me still, you know. But that also is a reality. And it's not everybody's story, but it's more people's story than you would think it is. You know, there are a lot of folks out there who've come through our ministry over the years. We've had thousands of people that have participated with us. And there are, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of folks who are out there that are now, you know, either single and serving the Lord faithfully in churches or have decided that they can be married and are married and they're living out lives as wonderful dads and moms, having kids and raising incredible Christian citizens. So you've had quite a journey from your confused childhood. Yeah to where you are today helping other people. Yeah. Ricky Shillette, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. Thank you for having me. That was Eric Scadabo chatting with Ricky Shillette, who's the Executive Director of Living Hope Ministries. And for over 30 years, Ricky has spoken to thousands of teens and adults who struggle with their sexual identity. As we heard today, Ricky certainly has a heart for helping others who are struggling with sexual brokenness. To find out more about Living Hope Ministries, their website is livehope.org. That's livehope.org. Living Hope's mission is to proclaim God's truth as they journey with those seeking sexual and relational wholeness through a more intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Finally, if you would like to pray with someone about any of the issues you've heard about on today's program, our prayer line is 1-800-PRAY-FOR-ME. That's one 800 772-936 and we would love to pray for you on that number 1-800-772-936 well thanks for joining us for Ricky's story I'm Jimmy Colfax encouraging you to share your story with someone today the story, the story. just another way vision is connecting faith to life This program is a production of Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, see vision.org.au.